So this question comes in from Gary. I've heard some teaching recently uh, that after the rapture, there is no second chance. If you're left behind, it's over. Do you have any scripture to refute or confirm that? Thanks. Uh, great question. Thanks for asking that, Gary. Um, yes, I, th- I think that uh, this is a good question to, to ponder. Let me just for a minute here, at the risk of of, um, uh, of stating the obvious for many uh, of those who are watching this channel, no doubt you are well aware of what the rapture is, uh, and you're even like me waiting for it uh, right now. And so, um, um, but for those who are not, I couldn't help thinking as I'm reading this question, how much I, how thrilled I was when, uh, when this idea was first presented to me. And I went to the passages that I'd like you to turn to, First Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, and also First Corinthians 15. Between these two passages, we have a pretty clear explanation of this idea of what is known as the rapture. Let me read 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, uh, and then begin to answer the question by first describing what the rapture is. Uh, Paul writing, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words." Uh, really quickly, uh, the opening and the closing, the two bookends of this section really are, are important and sometimes overlooked. First off, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Um, this is not intended to be an insult, like you're an ignorant person, but rather instead, Paul is saying, I don't want you to be, um, not understanding this. I want you to make sure you do understand this, this idea. Um, similarly to when he talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I don't want you to be ignorant. He wants to make sure there's understanding about this. At the end of it, in verse 18, he says, comfort one another with these words. Uh, so this idea that we're talking about is supposed to be an opportunity to bring, to be comforted and to comfort one another with the prospect of what it is Paul is describing. What is Paul describing? Well, for starters, those in Thessalonica had sent Paul a letter because they were concerned. In First and Second Thessalonians, we see Paul spends a pretty significant amount of time talking about eschatology, the idea of Christ's coming and the events that surround that or lead up to it. And so among, uh, among the things that the Thessalonians were concerned about is that, well, if Jesus is coming, what about those who've died among us, those who are not alive when Jesus comes? So they were expecting Christ to return in their lifetime. They were so concerned uh, or so expecting it that they actually were concerned about those who didn't make it to the second coming. Well, Paul not only uh, no doubt taught them about the second coming, but here in 1 Thessalonians 4, he actually tells them about a preceding event that takes place as well. Now, whether or not he spent a lot of time on this with them at the time, and he's reminding them, or if he's letting them know about this element now, or when this letter was written, after he was with them in Thessalonica, uh, is, is, it can be debated. But listen again to what he says in regard to this event that we're talking about. Um, regarding those who've died or fallen asleep, that's a beautiful euphemism for the idea that they had died. He says, don't sorrow like others who have no hope, because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, he will bring with him, uh, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Those who died in Christ will come with him when he comes. Now, 
For this we say to you by a word, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, and here's where the passage really uh, begins to introduce something that would, again, have been new to them. Um, I'll explain why I say that in a second. But then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And again, comfort one another with these words, therefore. So in verse 17, there is this idea of being caught up together to meet them. Who's the them? Those who died in Christ were mentioned previously. We will meet them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, there is an understanding of the second coming from places like Zechariah and other places where we, as uh, Revelation 19 into chapter 20, where we understand that when Jesus comes in the second coming, he's going to set foot on the earth, on the Mount of Olives in, in particular, and it's going to split. He's going to um, judge the Antichrist and the false prophet, cast them into the lake of fire. Uh, all of those who have met to fight against him at Armageddon in that, in that battle are going to be uh, killed in that moment and will await the great white throne judgment. And then Jesus will establish a kingdom. But all this happens when he returns to the earth. Here in chapter 4, verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul introduces something different. He says, "You shall, we shall be, not you, we who are alive shall be caught up. So again, Paul is expecting... To this to happen in his lifetime, which is why I believe in the idea of an imminent rapture. I think that it could happen at any second. Um, um, my intention is not to get into the timing of the rapture in this discussion per se. We've talked about that before, and we'll talk about it again. But I will just briefly say that the idea of the imminent rapture is not something that came much later under uh, the writings of a, a man named John Darby, as is often accused, uh, is often accused of pre-tribulational rapture believers, those who believe the rapture of the church will happen prior to the tribulation period or that 70th week of Daniel. But rather, I would point to this passage right here as one example of why, and I think there are explicit, other explicit and implicit reasons why I would hold this view too. I think Paul was expecting this event he's talking about to happen in his own lifetime. Uh, so the fact that it hasn't happened yet means we're that much closer to it happening. So when it happens is a matter of God's timing, uh, when it fits his purposes and plans best. I tend to think we're getting like on the cusp. I'm, I'm looking for the rapture like right now as I'm speaking these things. And so, and I think I'm in good company. I think Paul believed the same thing. But the idea of being caught up is different than the idea of Jesus coming to the earth. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, just to further a little for, uh, more on the conversation about the timing of the rapture, there are those that believe that this event, this being caught up, would happen kind of simultaneously with the second coming. We would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air en route to his returning to the earth. Um, that is one view. Another view is that Jesus might re- uh, return to snatch away his bride, catch us up. The word harpazo is the word there in the Greek for caught up. Um, harpazo is the Greek. The Latin is uh, rapturo. And we get our English word rapture from that Latin term that ultimately is taken from the Greek term that is its origin. Um, but others would believe that the idea of the harpazo or the catching up, the rapture, would happen at maybe the midway point of the tribulation period or maybe after, a little bit after the midway point. A mid-tribulation or pre-wrath would be those two views. Um, 
Or again, uh, like myself, there are many who hold the idea of a pre-tribulational view, the idea that we will be snatched away prior to uh, any part of the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period. So, but the rapture is, again, the idea of being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, it is different from the idea of his coming to earth. And so, therefore, we see this as a uh, preceding event to the second coming. Um, uh, the other passage I mentioned that I'd like to look at just for a second, too, before I'm very much more specifically answer the question Gary's asking, um, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And starting in verse uh, 51, uh, and well, verse 50 uh, is a good place to start because it describes the idea of the change that it begins to introduce the idea of the change we're going to experience because we as in flesh and blood as we are cannot inherit the kingdom of God or eternity and such in this condition, but a change must take place. And so Paul goes on to describe that. And here we go in verse 50 of chapter 15 of first Corinthians. Now this I say, brethren, <coughs> excuse me, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And here we go. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Uh, a mystery, again, is the idea of something that was not either known at all or at least not fully understood previously. So Paul is now explaining something that had not been understood really prior to this point. Uh, same word that he uses when he talks about the church being a mystery that now he is making known in his teaching in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, so the idea of a mystery, we shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. He goes on to describe more about that. Of course, the great victory over death and the grave that Christ has accomplished that not only does he experience because of his own victory over the grave, but he shares that victory with us and that we also conquer death by virtue of his finished work. And so um, the idea of uh, our being changed, the dead in Christ rising, and then we're also changed in that same moment. Again, very similar to the discussion in First Thessalonians. And so this is what the rapture is. The idea of in just a split second, uh, trumpet sounds were snatched up to meet the Lord in the air. Those who have died in Christ will will go first, and then those who are alive at that time. Uh, again, if this happened today, the this, the 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 church age saints would be snatched up right away, and then we would be snatched up immediately following them. So fast as to not likely be noticed, but just just in this, uh, there is a sense of order in this. But we're changed immediately, and we are glorified, and we are now fit for eternity. And when Christ does return, again, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, we will return with him. He also talks about this to the Colossians and such. When Jesus returns uh, to the earth in the second coming, we will come with him, glorified as we will be at that point. One other additional thing before I get to Gary's question specifically is that there is some debate as to what about the Old Testament saints, those who had died looking forward to Messiah and that, those who died in faith and under the Old Covenant. Will they be raptured or will they be resurrected at some later point? I tend to think they'll be resurrected at a later point. I think that the rapture is just for the church age, but the resurrection of the Old Testament saints will happen 
either contemporaneously with or, or, or immediately before, but somewhere right about that time, we'll see them resurrected as the, as the kingdom is established. Uh, mostly because the kingdom was first promised to them, to the saints in the Old Testament who died in faith. They are those who will enter the kingdom, as well as any, uh, any Jews in the, in the new covenant who come to faith in Christ, um, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the new covenant era. And so this is a promise first to Israel that we who are part of the church are grafted on the vine. Now, in concert with their answering Gary's question, I, I kind of almost slipped out with the answer as I just said those last words. Let me clarify something here. When I talk about Jews in the new covenant, uh, any Jew who comes to Christ under the new covenant becomes part of the church because they are saved during the church era. They are messianic Jews. They are, uh, Completed Jews is the term is sometimes used. The idea is that they have come to believe in their Messiah just like we have. I would encourage you to read places like Acts chapter 15 where a discussion about some of these things uh, was the focal point. But if you are saved in the period of time uh, between Jesus' ministry, or uh, not ministry, but really Acts chapter 2, after the resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers, you could say the gospel era because in John chapter 20, Jesus breathes on these disciples, the 11, they receive the Holy Spirit, and they are now born again in the new covenant sense of the term. So from that point on, um, ultimately until the, uh, uh, until the rapture of the church, uh, anyone saved in that period of time would be part of the church. That would be part of the church age believers. Those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit during the period of time I just described. Um, now, what about the, what about the question? Um, is after the rapture, is that it? Well, I, I, I presume what we're saying, it, it, what Gary's question is, and I, I, I can't ask him this. I, maybe I should have before I answered the question, but, um, uh, does, I, I assume what we're asking is, is anybody saved after the rapture? Um, it may be that that you're asking, is there another rapture, or is you know what what happens to those who get saved after the rapture? And there's no second rapture. There's there's just the rapture of the church, and then there's the second coming uh, at the end of the seven year tribulation period. Um, but are people saved after the rapture? The answer is yes. People will be saved after that period of time. And if, if you would um, join me in Revelation chapter seven. In Revelation chapter 7, uh, uh, at this point, by the way, I, I will let my bias be made known. I think that at this point, the church is gone. Again, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. There are those who would believe in a mid-trib or a pre-wrath view or a post-trib view. Um, uh, of course, there's always the amillennial view as well. But, but in terms of those who would believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ and a rapture that happens prior to that installation of the kingdom of of, uh, of the millennial kingdom. Um, I hold the view of the the earliest view of the rapture. In other words, it happens prior to that period of time. So, by the time we get to uh, uh, the period of time after the sixth seal, I think we're gone. I think we're gone before the first seal is broken. We've talked about that in the past, and and you can kind of chase that down if you want to see some of our previous discussions on that. But let me just invite you to look at uh, Revelation chapter seven. Where John says, after these things, in other words, after the, um, after he saw the breaking of the first six seals, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the, um, uh, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. 
And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea, nor the, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And he goes on to list 12 tribes. Um, it's an interesting list that is uh, that is different from uh, the listing of the twelve tribes is different in many cases. Sometimes Dan and Ephraim are not included. Sometimes one or the other is included. Sometimes Joseph is included with his two sons. Uh, uh, sometimes it's just his two sons are named and that kind of thing. So interesting study in itself. But the twelve thousand from each of the twelve tribes are listed, and then in verse nine. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces uh, before the throne and worshiped God, and they go on to worship, and it describes the worship, and it's just this glorious scenario. Now, uh, there are many, and I'm I'm kind of in this camp, but uh, there are many who say, well, these from every tongue, tribe, and nation uh, are uh, are the fruit of these 144,000 who are sealed with the seal of the living God, who uh, are on the earth during the time of the tribulation. Uh, in other words, the implication being that this is, in fact, an evangelistic outreach that brings about if in fact these multitude um, are from uh, all of this, uh, if they are the fruit of that ministry, then what you have in view here is potentially the biggest evangelistic outreach in history, and it happens after the church is gone. I don't know if that's supposed to be an indictment or if that's even necessarily the case, but that is one view, and I think it makes sense. I think it makes sense. It's not without some challenges, that's for sure, but I think that there's a reasonable case to be made that that's what's in view. But setting all that aside, um, during the tribulation period, in chapter 7, right at the outset, 144,000 Jews are saved. So after the rapture of the church, yes, people are saved during that period of time. Uh, even if even if those uh, that great multitude that is mentioned starting in verse 9 isn't the fruit of that, and somehow they're in heaven and they're not part of what happened there with 144,000 uh, from each of the tribe, or with 12,000 from each of the tribes, even if we take them out of the equation, we do know at least that there are those, uh, at least that number, that is saved. Um, so it would seem to me, uh, not only that, but but later on in, um, is it uh, chapter 14? Actually, I would just, this just now, uh, yeah, here we go, chapter uh, 14. I wasn't even thinking of this before, but it kind of comes to mind now. In chapter 14, starting in verse 6, um, and in chapter 14, by the way, we see once again uh, 144,000 with the Lamb now standing on Mount Zion, uh, having uh, his Father's name written on their foreheads uh, and such. And so here they are in view once again. And then uh, I saw another angel, verse 6, flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fortification. And now here we go, verse 9. 
Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out uh, full strength into the cup of his indignation. Uh, uh, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And he goes on. Um, uh, and then in verse 13, uh, or let me just keep on reading. And then the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die from in the Lord from now on. Yes, is the spirit that they may rest from their labors and, and their works that follow them. So, those who die in the Lord from now on. Okay, so uh, between the call um, uh, in verse 7 uh, and then in verse 9, the first and third angel, there is a call to come and to worship God. To uh, and then to not take the mark and that kind of thing, it would seem reasonable that that call goes forth at the very least to give opportunity for people to come and put their faith in Christ, in concert with the hundred forty four thousand uh, Jews who are sealed. There's also then again mentioned here those who die in the Lord from now on. Uh, so we're well into the tribulation period. We're past the halfway point now. Antichrist has violated the covenant, uh, as spoken of in Daniel nine twenty seven. Uh, we find he's on the scene. The image has been breathed life into. The mark of the beast is being uh, is being implemented. Uh, all this stuff is going on here, and there seems to be clearly the idea that there will be those who will come to faith and be martyred for their faith. Uh, in chapter twenty, we uh, we see uh, those who were beheaded for not taking the mark of the beast, and that right. So uh, we see that there are. There, there seems to be very clear evidence that there will be those who, after the rapture of the church, will be saved. Um, my intention was, again, not to get into a whole discussion of the various rapture views, but it's hard not to at least address that if the rapture happened later, like at the end of the tribulation period, um, well, then, then probably at that point, if there's a post-tribulational rapture, then it would seem that probably no, no one gets saved after that because if the rapture happens as Christ is returning, when Christ returns, it's now judgment upon the earth and all of those who are are unbelieving. And so does anybody get saved after that point? Um, Not really, except, you know, potentially you could argue in the millennial period because there will be people born during that period of time, who themselves have to put their trust in Christ. Many won't and will be deceived by Satan when he's released after the thousand years. So there will be some that will, no doubt, believe, but there will also be many who don't. Um, So there's just other uh, elements that could be brought to bear based on your your view of, uh, of when the rapture happens. I, again, I, I happen to think the pre-tribulational rapture best fits um, you know, sort of the overall scope of eschatology, but there are those that hold different views, and and you know, for reasons that that you know, we all we all believe we have valid reasons for our position, and so um, I don't want to discount that. It's just that I don't hold those later views. So my answer to your question, I guess maybe I'll qualify it that way. My answer to your question is is that with the rapture being at the beginning or prior, before the beginning of Daniel's seventieth week, at some point. Yes, there will be those who will be saved afterward. Uh, and I think those passages would bear bear that point out. Um, 
Um, so there you go. And I, I think that view probably also fits into um, the mid and pre wrath views as well. Um, um, I guess I don't recall uh, for sure. Uh, I couldn't reference a, a book or a writing a page number that I remember really addressing this question in any of the books I've read on that. I'm sure it's there, but I'm just not remembering at the moment. But my sense is, is that anything other than maybe a post-tribulational rapture view would probably answer the question regarding those being saved after the rapture of the church as being in the affirmative, uh, even though they may hold to a later rapture view. So uh, I might be wrong about that, though. So, um, But in any case, um, there you go. That's, that's my take on it. So uh, for what it's worth, uh, there you go. Thanks for asking the question, Gary. I really appreciate that. And... Um, uh, if you have any questions that you'd like to ask, uh, you can certainly do that. You can email me at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. Uh, Gary and many others leave their comments in the comment section on our YouTube channel. You can do that. Um, you can also uh, follow on our Telegram channel. And if you want to ask questions there, that's a good place to do it as well. So um, you can look up um, Parsons Pad Podcast on Telegram and you'll find us and you can subscribe to the channel and you can ask questions and all that kind of thing. So, and these same videos get posted there as well. So, um, all right. Well, thanks for watching and listening. I really appreciate it very much. Uh, I, I, I love uh, the questions and I love being able to open our Bibles together and consider some of these things. And uh, I do hope you'll take the time on your own to consider these things and do some uh, digging in and, and, uh, and, and seek to understand the best you can as well. So praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us, uh, grace without which we would have no possible chance of, of standing in your presence, but rather instead, because of what Christ has accomplished, what Jesus did for us on the cross and taking our penalty upon himself, uh, we now have been declared justified by your grace received by faith. And so we are grateful beyond words, and we are grateful for all eternity for the gift, the beautiful gift of salvation that you have given us, something that has not been achieved or earned by us or any works that we've done, but rather instead fully by your grace and the finished work of Christ. And so we thank you. We stand upon it. We rest in it. We anticipate uh, eternity and being able to stand in your presence unafraid and unashamed because of it. And Father, we are so grateful once again. What can we say but thank you? So we uh, pray that, Father, in the days that... Um, that are coming, that uh, we would be all looking, regardless of what our position might be, that we'd all be looking for the bridegroom to come for his bride, that we would be excited at the prospect of seeing Jesus. Again, whichever, whatever view we have on the timing of that, Father, we would just pray that as any bride would be thrilled to death at the prospect of seeing her bridegroom, so, so too would we when it comes to seeing Jesus, that we would be yearning for the day that we are snatched away to go be uh, in our heavenly home. So thank you, Lord. We love you and praise you and we bless you and we thank you that we will be with you for all eternity. So thank you for all of this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thanks for watching. We'll catch up with you next time.